and dying the death that we deserve, that we might have life. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we're talking about good news. Uh, we're talking about good news in our church right now. Uh, we've been focusing on the good news of the gospel for the last few weeks. Um, it struck me this week as I was standing in the library uh, doing some of my studying uh, that, uh, that a lot of people offer good news, uh, not just us. A lot of people offer good news. Everywhere you look, someone is trying to tell you some form of good news. So I was standing in the Washington Library and I was walking down the racks that they have all the magazines at and they've got just all these popular magazines that are out for the month, the current issue. And as you look at all the magazines, you see that every magazine is promising you good news. Okay, they're all proclaiming to you some sort of good news. Uh, I saw some good news proclaimed about beauty. Um, some of the actual headlines that I saw, they promised that you could look hot and feel cool. Uh, they promised that you could snack more and weigh less. This is good news. <laughs> this is good news. I saw good news about money. They gave you uh, 101 ways to build wealth. They had good news about relationships. Uh, they, they said, here's what you do when he gives you the silent treatment. It's good news. Uh, we had good news about food. There was one chef's secret to delicious vegetables, or more importantly, another chef's secret to the juiciest burger. Uh, and good news about happiness. Feel happier every day. Okay, the, the magazines in Washington Library and in the supermarket are proclaiming to you good news. Uh, they're all promising that if you just read this magazine, if you, um, you know, primarily they're saying if you buy this magazine, but, but then if you read this magazine, you will be changed, you will have your needs met. This is good news for you. Um, of course, your interest and any particular offer of good news uh, depends on what you think your problem is. So not all of those offers of good news are equally interesting to all of you. Uh, if, if you feel like your problem is that you can't catch walleye, uh, which is one of my problems, uh, then you would like the, the promise of good news that says hot tactics to dupe giant walleye. Okay? But if you're not interested in that, then you, you really don't care. Or if you think that your problem is uh, that you don't sew fast enough, which, Don, I know that's your problem, uh, then you might be interested in this one. It says tips and tricks to save time and peace better. Yeah, so th there you go. I'll tell you which magazine later, and you can go look it up. Uh, so, uh, but, but some of you, you're not interested in that, and so it th doesn't seem like good news. See, if, if something is, is really good news for you, then it, it meets your problem hand in glove. You, you, you feel you have a deep problem and someone says, well, here is the good news that addresses that problem. And you say, yes, that is good news because I had a longing for that. I had a need for that particular thing. Uh, and I'm sure for, for some of us, uh, for all of us, it, at some point, one of those headlines, you know, strikes some need for you. Um, you know, some, some of us uh, are interested in, in having help in those sorts of things, whether it's taking care of money or improving relationships or cooking better or all those things, there's some level in which that is good news for us. But, but as, we, as we journey into God's word this morning, I want us to ask the question, what, what's, our, what's our problem really? Uh, is our problem really something that's going to be satisfied, that's going to be answered by these promises of good news that we see in the magazines? Um, I mean, did you ever you know, buy the magazine or read the article and you think, oh yes, now that I finally know how to keep my chicken juicy on the grill... 
uh, I don't have any more problems. I'm satisfied. That's everything that I needed. No, you, you don't. I, I, and, and that's the reason why these magazines keep getting published uh, month after month after month with the same headlines. You could do the same experiment with magazines from 10 years ago and you get the same smattering of headlines because we're all looking for answers in these problems. This good news that we get from the magazines is not deep enough. It's not good enough because it doesn't address the real problem that we all have. See, the root problem that we've all got, yeah, we've got these other problems, but the root problem beneath the problems is that we are all, um, we are all from the moment that we've been born, alienated from God. That, that's our root problem. Because we've sinned, we are alienated from God and we stand under God's judgment. And so just hearing about how to catch walleye or how to get a better burger or how to sew faster is not going to address that problem. We need better news that addresses the deeper problem. And that's the great and glorious good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ provides the answer to that problem. See, we deserve to die, but Jesus is our substitute. We've been learning the good news together as a congregation over the last few weeks, and I've been uh, emphasizing every week that there's one way to summarize the gospel, one way to summarize the good news, is that it's got four parts. If you look on your outline, you'll see those four points, uh, those four parts, uh, the headings on the note-taking outline. Uh, the first is that there's news about God, then there's news about humanity, there's news about Jesus, and there's news about our response or what we have to do when we hear this news. So each week we've been focusing on each of those points. Two weeks ago we looked at, at God more in depth. Last week it was humanity. And this week I want to look at the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, but before we get to that, so let's recap where we've been. Uh, you can start in Genesis if you want to follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to jump around more than usual today. Um, so if, if you don't follow everything and you want to find out what was that passage again, uh, you can ask me later or you can get the, the tape uh, of, the, of the message and listen again. But we're going to start in Genesis. Uh, you, you remember when we talked about God a couple weeks ago, we looked in Ezekiel chapter 1, and then last week we looked in Genesis 1. You could really look anywhere in the Bible and get a consistent message about who God is. And the basic point is that God is glorious. Okay, so, so, so we're, just, we're people, we're part of the created order. God is not a part of the created order. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who's above everything. If you saw him, you would fall down and die because you cannot comprehend how wonderful and majestic and powerful he is. He is far above us, and yet he created us. So God, the thing that we need to know about God is he's glorious, perfect, holy, wonderful. And then humanity, he, he made us, and we need to know two things about humanity. First, that he made us to be glorious like him. Okay, he made us to be glorious. He made us in his image. We're supposed to act like him in the world. We're supposed to reflect his glory in the way that we live and work and love one another. But something went horribly wrong. God told Adam and Eve not to eat from a certain tree in the garden, and they disobeyed God. And in doing so, in that rebellion against God, they ruined humanity. Uh, we're, we're, we're warped. We're twisted. There's a problem. So we're glorious, but we're also ruins. We're glorious ruins. This is who we are as human beings. We're, we have the potential to do great and glorious and wonderful things because we're made in the image of God, and yet so often we do horrible, despicable, evil things because there's something wrong with us. And because of our sin, we are alienated from God. That relationship with him is broken, 
and we stand under God's judgment. We're guilty and deserving of death. As we begin to look at the work of Christ, then, we need to continue to look at this problem. Because you see, the, the good news is only as good as your understanding of the problem. If we get the problem right, then we'll see how great and glorious the work of Jesus is. So first, let's, let's look at Jesus Christ. In your outline here, we're under the, the heading for Christ. And the first point, the first news that we need to understand is that God in his justice requires our death for our sin. In Genesis 2.17, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave Adam a command. He said, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then Adam and Eve ate from the tree. In Genesis 3.18 and 19, God says to him, um, Because you ate, uh, uh, verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So God's saying, I told you, in Genesis 2.17, don't eat from the tree. If you do, you'll die. They eat from the tree. God says, you ate from the tree, you're going to die. Now we'd like to suggest some alternatives to that wouldn't we? Uh, we'd like to suggest some alternatives. Like, um, I know you said that because we sinned, we should die, but God, can't you just let it go? And just, just let it, it wasn't that big of a deal. Can't you just let it go, and, and it won't be a problem, and we'll just move forward from here, pretend like it didn't happen. Uh, I'll be better in the future. We'd like to suggest that as an alternative. Or if that doesn't work, we'd like to say, well, I understand I screwed up. I understand we made a mistake. What can we do to make it up to you? Okay, don't rush to this dying thing so quickly. Surely there's something that we can do to make it up to you. Uh, and yet both of those is a, are misunderstandings of the, the concept of justice. Okay? We, we, just, we don't like the concept of justice. We try to run away from it. We refuse to deal with what justice really is. See, justice is simply getting what you deserve. You do something wrong, you get the punishment for doing that wrong thing. You do something right. You get the reward for doing that right thing. That's what justice is. You, you get what you deserve. And we see that principle at work in our legal system, where if you do something not so bad, you get a not so bad penalty. You do something worse, you get a worse penalty. So if you're driving uh, over the speed limit, which never happens to us, I know, but just imagine you're driving over the speed limit. If you were to do that and a police officer were to pull you over, they would give you a ticket, right? There's a penalty. It's not a horrific penalty, but it's a penalty. Uh, if you were to do something worse, like to steal, uh, if you were to steal cable television or if your tastes are a little more literary inclined, if you steal from a library, uh, either of those would be a misdemeanor. And with misdemeanors, you can get uh, jail time, short amount of jail time, or a fine. So it's, it's more significant, more significant crime, more significant penalty. Uh, if you were to break into somebody's home, okay, then you can, that's a felony. And felonies, you get more significant prison time, more significant fines, more significant consequences altogether. And if you were to kill somebody, you could get the death penalty. Because killing somebody is worse than breaking into their home. 
Breaking your home is worse than stealing a library book. Stealing a library book, apparently, is worse than speeding. Okay? But that's, that's the basic principle of justice. When you do something worse, you get a worse penalty. You get what you deserve. Uh, so the key question that you have to ask is, well, so what's so bad about what Adam and Eve did? What's so bad about sin? Because God is saying by his penalty that what we did and what we do when we sin all the time is horrific. He's saying what you're doing here in, in sinning is worthy of the death penalty. Uh, one way to think about it, because we're, we're just very bad at evaluating the seriousness of sin, and that's because we're involved, right? Because we're, we're really good at self-justification. Uh, so anything that we do, we're really good at saying, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Okay, so, so we need to look at something outside of us to tell us how bad sin is. And that's what God has given us, actually. Because as we look at creation, we can see how bad sin is. It's an object lesson. When you look at what the world was like before there was sin, and what the world was like after there was sin, you compare the two, this great before and after picture, you see how horrible sin is. It's, it's a picture from God to say this is what sin is like. Uh, we, uh, I'm not making this up. This comes from Romans 8. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, Paul is writing about uh, the world and the effects of sin. And in Romans 8, 19, he says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Um, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, Notice that it's bondage to corruption or bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruit of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Two key phrases there. Uh, Paul talks about the creation, the created world. He's saying in verse 21, it is currently in bondage to corruption. In verse 22, he says that the whole creation is, is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Now, in Genesis 3, we saw this. God said to Adam, one of the consequences was the ground is cursed. Weeds came up. It was hard to garden. It was more difficult to function in the natural world because of sin. And here Paul's saying the same thing. You look around, you look at the world, you see bondage to decay. Bad things happen. Natural disasters happen. There's tornadoes and earthquakes and tsunamis, and, and the world falls apart. You leave a bike out in the rain, it gets rusted. You leave a garden untended, weeds come up. This is the way the world is. And what I'm saying is this before and after picture, you look at the way the world was before sin, perfect. The way the world is after sin, it's horrible. You say, what happened between those two things? We sinned. So sin must be incredibly horrific if one of the side effects of it is to destroy the universe. Okay. The reason why we have tsunamis is because we have rebelled against the creator of the universe. And that's just one of the, the side effects. It's just such a horrific thing to stand before God and say, I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to reject you. I don't need you at all. And that it, it's like it, it rips apart the fabric of the created universe. It, Part of our rebelling against God and what we were made to be sends shockwaves throughout creation such that we now have uh, wildfires in Colorado. And so it's just, just be the judge. 
Okay, with, with that perspective, you be the judge. You say, what is justice here? What is the appropriate punishment for causing the Indian Ocean tsunami that killed 200,000 people in 2004? What is the appropriate punishment for the earthquake in Haiti or Hurricane Katrina? What is the appropriate punishment for wrecking the universe? The appropriate punishment is death. That's what we deserve. And all these things that we see in the world are just a picture, this, this heaving evil of the created universe that we, we just see written on the, in the newspaper and, and as we see in the natural disasters before us. All of that evil is just a picture of the evil we can't comprehend, of us standing before our creator and saying to him, I'm going to go my own way. And God is just. He will not let us get off the hook for the evil that we have caused. He will punish us. His judgment and his justice requires death for our sins. See, if we get that, we get, if we just get a taste of the justice of God and the seriousness of our sin, we should be blown out of our minds that the Bible doesn't stop at Genesis 3. I mean, it should be the shortest book in the world. It should be uh, God creates man, man sins, God destroys man, end of story. But it doesn't end there. Because the character of God is not simply that he is just, he is also merciful. And so the second point under Christ that you need to see here is that God, in his mercy, accepts a substitute in our place. First, God gives animals as substitutes. That's how he starts. If you keep following along the story, uh, you get hints of this right off the bat. In Genesis 3, right after God has pronounced the death sentence on humanity, uh, you get this interesting hint where in verse uh, 21, it says, The Lord God, this is Genesis 3:21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. By itself, you wouldn't think much of it, but we're beginning a little story here. God, instead of killing Adam and Eve right away, kills some animals. And he gives them the skins. You get another hint of this in Genesis 4, when Cain and Abel come to bring offerings before God. And Cain brings an animal sacrifice, and God accepts it. It becomes more clear, the farther on you read in the Bible, that God is intentionally setting up animals as a substitute for humans. He's saying, you deserve to die. You absolutely deserve to die. But if you bring an animal sacrifice, I will count the animal as a substitute for your penalty. One place where it comes into sharp relief is in Exodus, when we have the Passover. Brief background for you, the, the, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and God had given ten plagues, or nine plagues up to this point, uh, trying to convince Pharaoh to let the people go, but Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And so God gave them the tenth plague, which was the death of the firstborn son. And God says to the nation of Israel, he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come through, and I'm going to kill every firstborn son, because that's what you deserve. But I'll give you a substitute. If you take a spotless lamb, a year old, and you kill it and you eat it together as a family, then you take the blood of that lamb and you put it on the doorpost over your house. When I see that blood, I'll know that the lamb has been sacrificed as a substitute for you and I'll pass over this house. But any, any house where there's not been a substitute, I will not pass over and I will go in and I will kill the firstborn son. And that's what happens. God is saying, you deserve to die, but I'll accept a substitute. Another place where this comes in 
uh, clearly, keep reading the Bible, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, gives you the instructions for this ceremony known as the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement was a once-a-year ceremony where the high priest uh, would begin by going and, and bathing and putting on special clothes. Then he would take a bull, and he would kill the bull. And the death of that bull would count for his own sins. Then having been purified by that bull, he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would uh, take the blood of a, uh, of a goat. And that goat, the death of that goat then, was to stand for the people and their sins. And then he would go back out, and they would take another goat, and he would put his hands on the goat and symbolically transfer the sins of the people onto the goat, and that goat would get sent out into the wilderness. Then after that goat was sent out, he would sacrifice uh, two more rams uh, to further uh, illustrate the substitutionary principle. And, and this whole thing was designed so that people would see, look, what, uh, first, uh, the high priest, he's guilty. He's got to kill a ram for himself. Then we've got to take one goat to cover our sins, to pay for our substitute. And then we'll take our sins, not just being paid for, but being taken away out into the wilderness. And each year they would do this ceremony where the people were reminded, you need a substitute. This is how God built it in for the people to learn that their sin was serious, but he has mercy. See, God in his justice demands our death, but in his mercy provides a substitute. And he began with animals. But as you keep reading the biblical story, you recognize that animals are not a sufficient solution. Okay? Animals are not a sufficient solution. They're not an adequate substitute for humans. Keep on reading the Bible and you get to Numbers 28. Numbers 28 is maybe one of those chapters that you would skip over in your through the Bible reading plan, but it's fascinating. Because in Numbers 28, we get a description of all of the sacrifices that need to be made in a given year for the particular holidays that are happening in the calendar, the, the traditional Old Testament Jewish holidays. Uh, all these sacrifices are burnt offerings. If you read in Leviticus 1, you find out what a burnt offering is. You, you bring an animal to the altar. You lay your hands on it, again, identifying yourself with the animal, saying, this animal is my substitute. You kill the animal. You drain the blood out. You splash it all over the place. And then you take the whole animal and you burn it up as an offering to God. So these are all burnt offerings in Numbers 28. It tells you that, first of all, there's supposed to be daily offerings. Uh, there's supposed to be an offering that happens every morning and then another one that happens every night. So that's your baseline. That's a normal rhythm. In the tabernacle, in the temple, you, you kill a lamb in the morning, kill one in the evening. Uh, male lambs, one-year-old without blemish. But also every week on the Sabbath, uh, you're, you're doing the normal daily, kill one in the morning, kill one in the evening, but then you have an additional two lambs that get sacrificed every Sabbath. Uh, every month, you tack on some more. At the beginning of a month, you would kill two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, one goat, and the two daily lambs. Uh, after the Passover, there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's seven days long. Each of those seven days, you would kill uh, two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, one goat, and the two daily lambs. That's a seven-day feast. Uh, the Day of uh, Atonement, or no, sorry, the, at Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, you would kill two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, one goat, and the two daily lambs. And then Day of Atonement, what I already told you, that normal sacrifice plus one bull, one ram, seven lambs, one goat, and the normal daily offerings. Then you get to the big one, the Feast of Booths, which is eight days long. The first day you do 13 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, and one goat. 
Good thing about that. 13 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, one goat, plus your daily sacrifice. Then each day of the seven days, you do the same sacrifice, just decreasing the amount of bulls, one per day. So the second day, you've got 12 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, one goat, daily sacrifice. Third day, you've got uh, 11, ram 11 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, one goat, and so on and so forth. Okay. So you add this all up over the course of a year in this tabernacle, or the temple, they, just the normal, ordinary sacrifices. This is none of the special stuff where individuals come in, which is going to happen all the time, individuals making offering for their sin. This is just the normal, corporate, everyday function of the tabernacle and the priest. Over the course of a year, you're, uh, you're sacrificing 113 bulls and 1,086 lambs. It's just the normal stuff. And uh, every time you're sacrificing, you're spilling their blood, you're putting them on the altar, you're burning them up. Now, if you're a sensitive Israelite, living under this system. I mean, what, what, do you, what do you begin to think? Every morning, every evening, all the time, there's a veritable river of blood flowing out of this place. You're hearing the animals crying. You're smelling the, the smell of roasting meat all the time. What do you begin to think about this system and its efficacy to actually deal with sin? I, I think you begin to question, when will it ever be enough? When will, when will we finally kill enough bulls and enough rams and enough goats to deal with our sin problem? And the answer is, is never. You're, you're never going to kill enough animals to deal with your sin. That's what the author to the Hebrews says in Hebrews 10.4. He says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. They're, they're just not an effective substitute. You can't substitute a bull or a goat or a lamb or a bird for a human life. Humans have sinned. Humans deserve death. How does it work that an animal can take your place? At the very best, it's a stopgap measure where you're, you're bailing water out of a sinking ship. You know, each sacrifice covers you for a little bit and then more sin, more penalty, more need for sacrifice. If animals won't do it, if they won't provide a lasting solution, what will? Um, I suppose that you could consider human sacrifice. That's what other cultures have done. Cultures throughout history, some have done animal sacrifice, but others have, have gone for human sacrifice because they recognize that principle, that animals aren't good enough. Killing an animal to substitute for another person, it just it doesn't work. So they've done the horrible and evil and despicable thing of killing humans as a sacrifice for themselves. But of course we know from Scripture, that God does not condone us killing humans. He doesn't provide that as an opportunity at all. So, not animal sacrifice, not human sacrifice. What options do we have? Who can be a substitute for us? Well, if you read in Isaiah 53, you see this picture of a person, yes, but not a victim a person who is God's servant who willingly says, I will go and be a substitute for humanity. A person who says, I will be the one to stand in the place of humans and take their sin on myself. I do it willingly as a servant of God, not as some sort of barbaric human sacrifice, but as an act of love. I'll go and do that. Let's just, I'll read a few verses from Isaiah 53 just to show you I'm not making this up. Isaiah 53, you know, was written 
400 years before Christ, but it's most clearly about him. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Okay, listen to this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What we get in Isaiah 53, and you could keep reading and find more examples of this, but what we see is a picture of a person, a servant of God, he's called elsewhere, who willingly goes and offers himself being smitten, being afflicted for us. Our sin being placed on him, our penalty being placed on him, and him dying in our place. Now for this to work, there's a couple things that would have to be true about this particular servant, right? This servant would have to be unlike any other human who's ever lived. He would have to be sinless. Remember the Day of Atonement, when the high priest goes in before he offers sacrifice for others? He's got to kill a bull for himself. Well, if this person is going to be a sacrifice, if this servant is going to be a, an actual sacrifice for others, then he can't have any sin himself. He's got to be pure, blameless, spotless. But more than that, he's got to be more than a man. You see that? Because if he wants to make atonement for the whole human race, if he wants to be a substitute for everyone, then he's got to be more than just one person. You know, if you have a sinless person, just a normal person, their one death could count for one other person. Right? That's how substitutes work. One for one. But if he wants to make atonement for many, if he wants to pay a ransom for many, then his life has got to be worth more than a normal life. His value has to be infinite. And that's exactly what we see in Jesus. That's why when John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus coming, he calls him, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. So that's who Jesus is. He's the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who is also at the same time the God of the universe. Second person of the Trinity, God the Son, becoming man in human flesh. This God-man who is without sin himself and of infinite worth is the only one capable of being an actual effective substitute for our sins. See, Jesus in his death and resurrection satisfies the justice and the mercy of God. This is so beautiful. This is the heart of the gospel. God in his justice demands our death for our sin. But God in his mercy desires to provide a substitute for us. Those two things come together in the person of Jesus. He offers himself as our effective substitute, taking our sin on himself such that God's justice is satisfied, the penalty is fully paid, but it's paid on someone who didn't deserve it who willingly took it on himself that we might have mercy. Two more brief passages. Romans chapter 3, verse 23. 
This is one of those great parts of the Bible that, that just explains the heart of the message. Romans three twenty three through 26. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just briefly hit the high points of this because this is a, a rich passage. But verse 23 you see he's, he's stating the problem. Saying we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God is glorious. We are created to reflect his glory but we're ruined. We, we, we don't do it. We've sinned. We fall short of the glory of God. We deserve death. He says, but, or but in verse 24, we are justified by his grace as a gift. So there's the mercy of God. God's saying, a free gift, I'm going to justify you. I'm going to forgive you of your sins. How could he possibly do that? Through Jesus Christ. Verse 25, who God put forward as a propitiation or a sacrifice, a substitute uh, by his blood to be received by faith. And here's the, here's the part where he talks about the mercy and the justice of God in verse 25. It says, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. You recognize this was a problem. It was a problem that God didn't kill us all immediately in Genesis 3. Okay, that's a problem. If God is just and he's waiting all this time, letting evil people continue to live, that's a problem. How does God resolve that problem? Well, it says in divine forbearance he passed over former sins so that at the present time, he would show his righteousness by putting all those sins on Jesus Christ such that, such that God can be both just and the justifier of those who put their faith in Jesus. God can be just, punishing sin, and merciful, forgiving you and me. See, all those animal sacrifices... All, those, all those, those deaths that were done in the past of animals, those were just like writing a check. Right? You, you know that when you write a check, that's not real money? Yeah, that check is just you promising that you have money in a bank account that will cover this payment? So you, you, you buy something, you write them a check, you're promising that there's money in the bank, so they go to the bank, there is money in the bank. When the check clears, that's the proof that the debt's been paid. All these animal sacrifices in the past were writing a check by faith. They're saying, we're killing an animal here. God told us that we need a substitute. I don't really understand how an animal can take away my sins, but I'm going to write that check. I'm going to kill that animal. I'm going to account for that blood uh, to cover for my sins. But the blood of the animals wasn't the money in the bank. The money in the bank is the blood of Jesus. When Jesus finally died to pay for our sins, that check was cashed. And it wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that took away your sins. It was the blood of Jesus. And when he rose from the dead, that was God saying, the check is cleared. This debt has been paid. The curtain has been torn. The way has been made open so that you can now have full reconciliation with God. I mean, I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't kill animals around here anymore. Right? This would be a very messy sanctuary if we did that. We don't do that anymore because Jesus has he's, he's, uh, he's paid that penalty. He's accomplished that work. Everything that the sacrifices were pointing towards, he's done it. And now if we accept that by faith, all that he's accomplished can be ours. Let's go to response. 
We're going to talk more about response in two weeks when I'm back again. But you have to understand that this message calls for a response. This message demands a response. Just the fact that Jesus did this does not mean it's automatically applied to every single person who's ever lived. It it demands a response. The death of Jesus uh, accomplished salvation, but it's got to be applied and appropriated into your own life. You've got to take it in. God offers salvation as a free gift. He's saying, I've done everything necessary for you to have your substitute. But you need to say to him, I'll take that gift. I'll accept that gift. The reason why it's hard to accept that gift is that the first thing that the cross does is that it humbles you. It's hard. It's hard to stand there, to sit there, and to admit that your sin is so bad that the only way that you will ever have forgiveness is by the infinite Son of God giving his life for you. That's incredibly humbling. It's humbling to consider the fact that your sin has cosmic implications. That you are in fact so vile and so opposed to God that he would be completely just to just annihilate you right now. But that's where you've got to start. You've got to start by admitting that, that you are a sinner. And that your only hope is for God to provide for you a substitute to take your place and to forgive you of your sins. But once you humble yourself, God gives grace to the humble. Once you take that first hard step of admitting that you are a sinner and asking God to be your substitute, you receive forgiveness. You receive grace. And the gospel begins to encourage you. Because not only does the gospel first humble you by telling you you are so much worse than you thought you were, the gospel also encourages you. Because it tells you that you are so much more deeply loved than you ever imagined. That though you were a sinner deserving of judgment, God loved you so much and loves you so much that he wasn't willing to spare his own son to save you but that Jesus Christ came willingly to offer his life for you. See, our response is to be humbled by the gospel, but then to go forward in confidence and in joy because the God of the universe cares so much about you. So when we hear the gospel, you must respond in faith and repentance. Appropriate it for yourself and begin to live a life of following Jesus in gratitude for all he's done. So this is the good news. I gave you some moderately good news at the beginning. Messages that you'll get from magazines or televisions or self-help books or friends. Tell you, you're not that bad. All you need is to be able to cook better or to lose some weight or to uh, do your hair with the latest product. or you know th- That's all you need. That's moderately good news, maybe, if it works. It's probably mostly lies. The good news, though, gets to the deeper problem. The great news of the gospel gets to the deep need of our soul. The good news that Jesus is our substitute satisfies our need for a Savior. The good news is that God is glorious and we are sinful, but Jesus died and rose again in our place. If you merely repent and believe, you can be forgiven and reconciled to God. 
That's the gospel. Let's believe it, let's live it, and let's share it. Let's pray. The good news is staggering, Lord, and I'm grateful for it. Thank you that you've given us the Bible uh, in which we have the full and complete record of all the, the riches of that good news. I know that I barely scratched the surface this morning. And Lord, would you please just take, take the good in my words that I've shared today and let that remain and resonate in our hearts. Drive us all to the scriptures that we would search, ransack them to find out more of this great treasure of good news that you've given for us. Give us the power to live our lives for you, uh, understanding the enormity of your, gl- your, your glory, uh, the depth of our own sin, and the beauty of the cross, that we will be forgiven, that we are forgiven and reconciled to you. Oh, Father, if there's anyone here today who has never reconciled with you, uh, would, you would you flip the switch? Would you make the connection right now that no one would leave here today with a question mark? saying, I don't know. I don't know if I've been made right with God. I don't know if Jesus has been my substitute. Lord, would you answer that question for them? Would you drive us all, Lord, to, to share our faith, not out of guilt, but out of joy, that we would be the receivers of such a precious promise. I pray this in Jesus' name.